Last year, some friends sent me a birthday card with a hilarious picture on the front of it. Uh, <clears throat> I can't do it justice. Two very, very conscientious, intense, serious bird watchers. You could see by their face and by their body language, both with binoculars straining to see birds or a beautiful bird up in the sky. And right down at their feet in between them was this beautiful bird just looking up at them. <laughs> Guess they were looking in the wrong place. Somewhat more complicated example but the same message myself and two other <clears throat> Americans spent a year in Korea uh, mainly practicing at one Zen monastery but before we started intensive practice uh, touring and visiting some of the um, famous monasteries and monasteries there. And our teacher, Korean Zen master named Sansanim, Sung San, said, Tomorrow uh, we're going to see the most beautiful Buddha Rupa, most beautiful Buddha form in all of Korea. One of the, one of the, of the three uh, was a um, an art historian specializing in Oriental art, particularly Buddhist art, with an exquisite taste and hunger for beauty, and especially Buddhist art. And he was beside himself. So we were all somewhat excited to see the most beautiful Buddha in all of Korea. Okay. The next day it was pouring rain. We made our way up this mountain. We were f full of mud. It took hours to get up there. Some of the uh, Places where people do real meditation are not easy to get to, and it's not an accident. And when we got to the top, there was this rather large meditation hall, and we, of course, went to the, our eyes went right to the, the beginnings of it, this, right, this part, the head of the hall, and we were looking for this most beautiful Buddha. Instead, there was a sign in Korean, which was translated if you can't see the Buddha here, you better get down the mountain and practice some more. Well, there was nothing there. Get it? Okay. It's not Buddha. If you're looking there, you're looking in the wrong place. To understand the Buddha's teaching, Buddha Dharma, I would say it's impossible to understand it if you're not willing to look into yourself. That's the right place to look. It's not about different cosmic views. Uh, all kinds of interesting metaphysical statements can be derived from it. But it's finally about looking into yourself and freeing yourself from psychological suffering. If you're not willing to do that, then uh, I don't know how much point there is in all this. Now, you might say, all of you are. You wouldn't be here otherwise. Probably. But you know, what I've found over the years is sometimes we're very hesitant 
to look into ourselves, really. And what we want to do is for, for someone to give us a technique. Look, don't start him with this self-knowing, self-knowledge stuff. Just, you know, breathe in, breathe out, lifting, moving, placing, and then I'll be okay, right? Uh, but even if we just said nothing about this, and you just did techniques, everything we said was about technique, our big mind gets in the way. And there's no way in which uh, we can avoid coming to know ourselves, as you will, to some degree, this week. So that uh, self-knowing is the core of the Buddha's teaching. Notice, it's a, as I'm using it, it's a verb. You can use self-knowledge. That's a much more well-known phrase. But knowledge is something that uh, you accumulate and put in memory and so forth. Self-knowing is something that you see in the active present. And it's valid in that moment. You see something, how you behave, how you speak, your motives whatever it is, and it's valid in that present, in that present moment. And often it's the same as action, because from that comes correct action, if the seeing is clear. Uh, Yesterday's insights are like yesterday's fish. They're over. It's It's not of much value, not refrigerated. Those of you who are new here, it's okay to laugh. I mean, I know we walk around, we look very serious and spiritual. I mean, just for my sake, laugh once in a while. (laughs) So self-knowing happens really anywhere. Any human being who's conscious whether they heard of meditation or not, you can't help but come to know yourself a little bit better by living. Life is challenging us often, and it's imposed upon us. We, we do learn some things just by growing older. But the kind of knowing that, uh, that this is about, of course, includes that. Uh, and yet it, it is a kind of knowing that isn't uh, commonsensical much of it could say it goes much deeper, but the concern is going deeply into our own consciousness to explore that landscape. And so it's not outside of ourselves. Obviously, sitting is devised to help us do that. It's an ingenious invention whenever it started. Maybe it's not an invention, I don't know. But just for, just take all of us, gathered here together for a week, very little uh, distraction, no toys, almost no toys, a few meals, rice cakes, you know what I mean? <laughs> At the time of the day when you desperately want something else. So we're here together, it's silent. Uh, if you follow the instructions, there's no reading, writing, arithmetic. I know that sometimes you have to call home. It's essential. We understand. But it's organized to cut off most of our usual interests. That's what a retreat does. And what's left is mainly you're stuck with yourself. I'm stuck with myself. 
Now, even within that, of course, we can find lots of distractions, and we do. But the field is getting narrowed down. Not only that, for those of you who are new, and I've, I know some of you already see it, uh, the silence is unrelenting. You know? It's not just the first day. We're just going to keep going like this. Sorry. You may have read the brochure and uh, sound contemplative or blah, blah. It's very, it's this. We're, not, we're hardly talking. There'll be occasions for some talk. And so one kind of knowing that may be more difficult to come by in daily life sometimes comes up in the sitting. And that's very, very helpful, uh, in part because uh, we're protected, it's safe, um, and we have energy and a boldness that comes from strengthening each other just by doing it together. Because alone, apparently we humans don't want to do self-knowledge. We don't want to look. Not too much. We think it's a great idea. It's on every university. Every university has at least one building where know thyself and Socrates and so forth. But there aren't long lines of people queuing up to do it. At least I haven't seen them, except here maybe. Or did you know that that's what you came here for? I just want to get calm. Sure. Okay, so knowing ourselves and liberation are really the same thing. Uh, Dharma is about learning how to live. That implies that we really don't know how to live too well right now. Otherwise, why do we have to learn how to live? The Buddha is more polite than I am. He didn't say, human beings, you don't know how to live. Let me show you. Much more subtle than that. But it comes down to that. when What we find out are all the different ways in which we create suffering for ourselves. Mental suffering, psychological dukkha, suffering. And uh, there is uh, a necessity to understa- understand ourselves or we perpetuate this. It goes through life. We go through life. Learning a little bit, refining, uh, get, getting rid of some rough edges a bit here and a bit there. But one of the main qualities of us humans is that self-deception is extremely powerful. You don't have to agree, by the way, with anything that I'm saying. It's not a prerequisite. To me, it's obvious. It may not be. Maybe I'm wrong. It seems to me that self-deception is rampant. And the beauty of it, in a perverse way, is the reason it's self-deception is that it really feels true. We really think we know what we're doing until something happens, and then we realize perhaps we didn't. And some of us pull over to the side of the road and decide to, I better take a look at how I'm living. And so the sitting form and the walking form, the quietude, the contemplation, of course, gives you uh, access to look inside and to begin to get to know yourself in certain ways. But it's not limited to the cushion. Self-knowing is something that can happen anywhere. And that's why we've been emphasizing um, that the practice and living are the same thing. Living and Dharma practice are not separate. Dharma practice includes every aspect of living. Uh, At first, that may seem a little stilted, self-conscious, but... Uh, If you get into it, it becomes not a technique, but a way of living. 
an intelligent way of living. You're paying attention. You're sensitive to what's happening to you inside and out, right? Here, there isn't so much social stuff going on, but there's still some. And you're willing to learn from what you see and hear. And we're getting encouragement all the time here to do that. And so don't limit self-knowing to the cushion, of course, but uh, bring that mind, that kind of mind of an inquirer, someone who's interested in learning about life, which means learning about you. You're an expression of life. And that's what we're here for. Okay, so that, if that seems pretty sensible, the Buddha has said, be a lamp unto yourself. Tremendous emphasis on learning how to take care of ourselves, how to, how to take responsibility for ourselves, how to see that our happiness and our suffering comes from right in here our own heart. If we don't understand ourselves, it's bound to be a lot of psychological suffering. The degree to which we start to see into and through, let go of that which needs to be let go of or unlearned, replacing it with what seems to enable life to be lived more fully, um, our life can change. And so that is at the heart of it. There has to be some interest in that. Um, The emphasis so far is on each person taking responsibility. We each do for for our own uh, living. We're learning how to do that. Is there help? Of course. We're part of it. We're doing it right now. Um, I would say the help... The best help I've received have been from teachers who have gotten me to look at myself. Some were gentle, some were subtle, some were like Mack trucks, uh, but all of them uh, kept me on track, and it wasn't about them. It wasn't about worshiping them, loving them. I mean, it's okay, we're human, we can love each other. But finally, we're trying to to find where is that bird? I don't see a beautiful Buddha. Well, the Buddha is not outside of ourselves. And we're here to learn, to learn how to do that, to develop some confidence and so forth. Well, then, what's the role of the teaching? All these uh, sermons of the Buddha, suttas, and uh, lots of words, and you know, uh, libraries full of the Buddha's teaching, internet loaded with Buddha stuff, more and more magazines with interesting talks by ancient teachers and contemporary ones. What's the balance between what others who've come before us have said and our own experience? The teachings are not, I just follow my heart, man, and and I just do what that tells me. That's what brought us to this mess. Uh, This is, again, a little bit not too refined, but it actually happened at Ajahn Mahabua's monastery in Thailand. And a kind of, I know this is prejudicial and probably incorrect speech and all that, but um, it was true, this person was from California. 
and you know had a kind of far out man almost after everything I'm probably dated in the way I'm characterizing it okay and so he had an exchange with Mahabua and uh, he said I just follow my heart spelled M-A heart uh, that was guy and Mahabua couldn't get it the translator had to give it to him again and again finally he just broke up with laughter he was just hysterical he said in other words you go through life following your heart that cesspool full of urine and feces <laughs> incorrect perceptions and destructive behavior patterns that uh, and so forth and he just was beside himself laughing okay so what to do the teachings of the Buddha emphasize an independent spirit to really finally uh, finally we do have to follow our heart it wasn't all wrong but uh, that heart has to be clarified it has to be understood so that it becomes something that really works for us rather than something that becomes the obstacle itself even though we may locate the obstacle constantly outside of ourselves that person, this situation, that boss that you know. um, the practice is sure that may be true but how about you, get back to you again and again and again okay. um, the role of the teachings there are teachings uh, have to do with not having to invent fire for the first time or is there other people some of whom extraordinarily sensitive, brilliant, intelligent, wise, kind, who've come before us for thousands of years. And fortunately, they've re- left a record, start with the Buddha, and that goes way, it's way prior to the Buddha, of course. And it's not limited to Buddhism. But that's what I know a little bit about. They've left us methods and techniques and uh, reflections and all kinds of things. So they're meant to help us. And the Buddha left the guideline. If something, if you're contemplating doing something, like speaking or acting, is it beneficial? Is it skillful? You'll probably hear a lot of that phrase a lot in Buddhist circles. Is it skillful? And here skillful means it's a mental skill. And the mental skill is, does what you're doing, will it lead, is it beneficial for you and for others, or is it harmful? If it's beneficial, do it. Say it. If it's harmful, don't. At first, before you act, sometimes you reflect. Sometimes it's just for a few seconds, sometimes it may be for years. And then you act on the assumption that it is beneficial. As you do it, you may find out that it isn't. If it isn't, stop. Apologize, uh, interrupt it. If it is, full speed ahead. Uh, it may seem as if it is beneficial, and then even after the act is over, the Buddha suggested from time to time, look back and see, was that really beneficial, what I did? I really thought it was, but now that I look back, it wasn't. It was quite harmful, perhaps for someone else, or perhaps for me, perhaps for both of us. And so then you experience some remorse, in the service of learning. It's not a guilt trip. 
you realize, oh, I, I just acted out of ignorance. I really didn't understand that. And as a result, I created more suffering on this planet. You learn the lesson as best you can, conceptually, of course, and then you move on. You drop it and you move on. So that is one guideline we've received. There are a number of suttas. Some of you may have already recognized. I'm referring to the Kalama Sutta. It's, not, it's a very, very important one. Uh, having to do with this balance between seeking the counsel of the wise but not handing over absolute authority to anyone or anything because it's ancient, because it's in an ancient text, because uh, your teacher is famous, uh, because so many people believe it and agree, etc. Examine it. Is it sensible? Is it reasonable? And if you put it into action, find out maybe a, a technique or a method or a particular way of looking at life as that's what you're exposed to here. It's one way to look at life, our life. And so if it is, then wonderful. If not, don't. Stop it. Um... So how to find the balance between being open to others but understanding finally our life is in our own hands. Even if you hand that life over to someone and say, please tell me what to do, you've made that decision. There's no way around it. And so uh, the approach here is to make use of techniques and methods and human help, teachings, and then to test them in the fire of your own action to see if they indeed if they stand up and if they do proceed it's not about a new belief it's not subscribing to a new belief system uh, I believe that there is no self that life is suffering that isn't what the Buddha taught anyway but uh, I hear people who sound like that and then it gives you a feeling of security you have group membership I'm a Buddhist. Religion. Buddhist. Feels good. No one else is. Very few. I'm the only Buddhist in the whole university here. Or the whole, you know. Oh, what is a Buddhist? What do they believe in? Buddhists believe that there is no self. and uh, It's not about a belief. Uh, for me, the Buddhist teachings are an approach to living. It's not really... So, for me, that personally, doesn't mean if this applies to you, it's not so much of an affiliation as a way of life, an approach to living, which I have found extraordinarily fruitful. So, passing it on to you to the degree to which I can, it may or may not be helpful. I don't know. I hope it is. We're all doing the same here. Okay. Um, let's now move into... We have lots of new people. We've started working with a simple in-and-out breath. Many of us who've been practicing for a while, perhaps we take that for granted. If you've been at this for a number of years, probably, 
you know that that simple activity of conscious breathing, temporarily allowing other things to just go their way, thoughts, or the vast array of rich things that visit us, tempting, in the mind and in the body, temporarily to let them go into abeyance and to feature breathing in, breathing out, breathing again and again. And of course, the mind loves to run after other things. Following the breath is like just clear water, and it wants something to drink that has flavor and ideally four or five things in it or some melodrama, for God's sakes, just in, out, in, out. Uh, some of what our job is is to get you, help you get through that phase until you begin to see if it's worth it. Is it worth giving up all those rich content, all the fantasies and dreams and memories and all the things you could be doing with your mind? You know, what many of us have discovered is good riddance, but, but maybe not. There's no fun. We can't now fantasize and do all kinds. Of, first, that isn't true either. But we are at first being asked to uh, relinquish. It's a kind of renunciation to relinquish all of our predispositions, our preconceptions, our uh, entanglements, mental, that have had so much practice. We've had so much practice doing them for just this simple in and out breath. Okay. Um, personally, on my own, I would never have come up with that. You know, if, I, if you gave me uh, 25 years, paid for everything, put me in a room and say, can you come up with some simple ways so that you'll be really happy and experience a lot of joy? <laughs> I think there'll be all kinds of things on my... No, that's... Uh, I think if we put, you know, Al Einstein, all oh, the whole gang together, I'm pretty, I have a hunch they wouldn't. It's so extraordinarily simple-minded... Okay, so, so part of the legacy of the teaching is somebody said, this is worth doing. Sit down, shut up, and take a look at your breath. And we've heard that there's something good goes on at IMS. People come and go. They love it. They go back whenever they can. They uh, you know, organize their life in certain ways, uh, save money, do without this. They can get to the next retreat. Okay, I'll give it a try. So what I'm saying is, even from something as simple as that, and it gets into aspects of the teaching and practice, which uh, are not as uh, simple at all, um, do you know that it really is useful for you to do? Have you learned that yet? I mean, do you really know that? I do. Honestly, I'm not bragging. It's just it's not that big a deal because it's lawful. If you pay attention, in, out, in, out, in, out, run away, in, out, in, out, in, out, run away, come back, in, out, eventually the mind settles down and gets peaceful and, and uh, even a, a tremendous joy comes and it goes on and on like that. Well, that's what the Buddha is saying. Take the counsel of the wise. Use your reason, your intelligence. But finally, put it to a test and find out, does this really something that helps you in life? Now, we humans are so weird. 
that we often discover things that really help us and then we hardly do it. We prefer to do the things that make us miserable. Somehow, we, we like that. It's a little bit like being a delinquent or something. Whether it's diet or meditation, or that somehow we enjoy doing wrong. And self-knowing, the, the power that I'm, I'm implying, that is self-knowing, is, in a sense, synonymous with learning how to live. Wisdom, wise living, the art of living. That's premised on the fact that, that the world is lawful, that there's an intelligence at work in the universe. If you want to call it God, that's fine. They're all endless words. But uh, cause and effect, without cause and effect, the Buddha's teaching makes no sense. Because what it's saying is, Certain causes lead to harm. Certain causes lead to beneficial effects. Start learning about what brings up what. It's quite akin to science. We're just ordinary common sense intelligence. Okay, so if we are insist on doing things that don't work, out of some ornery, 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 yeah, quality in mind. Uh, and then we get disappointed when the effect comes out of the cause. Well, the world is like that. It does, things don't just drop on us. Uh, we're planting seeds all the time. We're watering those seeds. We're caring for them. We try to see to it that is as much sunshine, not too much, not uh, too little, and so forth. Uh, and so more and more it's re-educating the mind so that it really wants to learn it wants to learn how to live. Uh, and there's even a joy in it. It's not medicinal or grim. It's uh, sensible, and the, the process of learning is its own fulfillment. But you begin to see this cause produces that effect. That's what karma is. Karma is cause and effect. Okay, so we're trying to, to increase good causes, beneficial causes, causes that uh, produce compassion, kindness, understanding, rather than ones that produce a torment, anguish. In one of the main meditation suttas, the Buddha taught, I mentioned it last evening, Satipatthana, Four Foundations of Mindfulness. The Buddha at one point, I'm not quoting it, just paraphrasing it, talks about how this practice leads to the end of torment, anguish, uh, grieving uh, and a, a whole bunch of other uh, human pain and that comes about through mindfulness amazing that is we, we start paying attention ignorance, ignoring is what got us into this mess and so we're turning it around instead of ignoring can we start paying attention okay so now we get into what does the breath have to do with learning how to live What does the breath have to do uh, with self-knowing or with living well? Well, some of it comes out of just awareness itself. Just the simple thing we've been doing now all day and we'll do for a while longer. In, out, in, out, exclusive attention to the breathing. We're re-educating the mind. We're training it. We're helping it to become 
uh, a steady, clear, stable quality that we have that can be used to help us understand it. That is, self-knowing or know thyself or who am I, they're wonderful questions. But if our mind is all over the place, we can't answer it. We're not fit to be able to do the work of really looking. How do you look at fear when it's so strong or loneliness? Well, part of it is we're starting to bring the mind along so that it has what we call samadhi, a stability. And Samadhi or that kind of stability is not meant to be left on the cushion. It's not just sitting and breathing in and out or doing metta or a mantra or whatever whatever you use to develop it. It's enabling the mind to have the capacity to be unwavering in the face of things that up until now either we didn't want to look at at all or if we tried we were unsuccessful because the energies were too powerful and they just swept, swept, swept us away. And so we're using the breath a lot to begin with and anything that helps us become aware of the breathing helps us develop that steadfast quality of mind, a steadiness that isn't pushed around by every situation that life brings to us. Not every situation, but so many. We're not dependent on things having to go our own way in order to be able to learn and to see and to free ourselves. So so that's that's good. Uh, Yoga that you did, mindful yoga, obvious benefits that all uh, well-taught yoga brings. You get healthier, you have more energy, uh, the breath is more vivid, so that can help this process along. Uh, <clears throat> you get a firm butt. There, uh, there's a, uh, a yoga studio in, in, in Los Angeles, apparently it's called the Firm Butt Yoga Studio. I'm not, I'm kid- and there's another one, which they're, I've forgotten the name of it, but their byline is, we don't burn incense, we burn fat. Okay, so there are all kinds of physical benefits that come from yoga. You will probably have a better butt if that's nicer thighs and so forth. Is that wrong speech in the context of a retreat? Uh, yoga can go wrong. Buddhists have been very careful about not getting overly attached to the body. In fact, uh, there's, there's really a lot of help with that. And many people doing Hatha yoga for years are coming to learn Buddhist meditation. Some of you perhaps are here. And Buddhist meditators are learning that their bodies are decomposing and they better go to these yogis to find out how to do certain things, take better care of their body and and others. So there's a mutual cross-fertilization going on. But uh, certainly uh, when we do these postures with breathing, uh, they're designed to improve the physical condition of the body and the degree to which we do, we improve the mind as well. But there's more that can come out of it. If you do the yoga mindfully, uh, what mind do you bring into the forward bend? What mind is doing the forward bend? What mind is doing a twist or the upward dog or the lower dog, downward dog? Uh, at first, of course, your attention 
is required and how to execute the posture correctly. Is my foot correct and my hand? But at a certain point, that becomes more natural. And then it's really no different than meditation in action. Because you can learn about the ways of the mind, craving and grasping. Often we get hurt doing the postures. We get ahead of ourselves. Or we're, we're bored. We're doing it so that we can be trim or fit. But we can't wait for our routine to end. Oh, just four more postures to go. And I can have breakfast. Okay. Uh, that is stu- we can so wisdom can come in anywhere you can learn anywhere and and so the the postures uh, carried out in that spirit not only help you to sit when you come into the hall gradually they will and to attend for the breath to be more vivid and uh, everything to be more vivid but it can be meditation in and of itself if you if you do it wholeheartedly with a mind that is totally doing just forward bend. Just forward bend mind. It's like met Dharma instructions for doing the dishes. Just do the dishes. And anything else. It means an undivided mind, intimate with what you're doing. That's the Dharma attitude. Mindful. Really mindful. Okay, so far so good. Five minutes. Hmm. If we do yoga and the country is becoming much more health conscious, which is a good thing, um, we, if you're on this particular path, and I'm speaking of things, obviously, just from that point of view, uh, what's emphasized in the Buddhist teaching is to come to terms with the true nature of the body. Because we tend to get, a, a lot of suffering comes from identification with the body, infatuation with it, wrong ways of relating to the body. Uh, when we're young, we have the conceit of that young people can have. I'm not saying some of you are young do have, where it feels like, uh, you know, we can get away with anything forever. We're in terms of energy or this or that. Uh, we might do foolish things, sometimes uh, affecting the rest of our life. We wind up in prison for something we did when we were very young. So any kind of uh, arrogance or conceit also if you're healthy if you've mainly been healthy you can take that for granted and be a little bit cocky about that identifying with the body I'm young my body is young I'm healthy my body is healthy and then of course death so I'm just hinting at a few things maybe later in the retreat we'll go, retreat will go into it more deeply but there are ways to balance off to make sure that as you improve the health of the body, uh, you don't throw away wisdom in the process. Words, from this point of view, wisdom has to be in charge. The best metaphor I, I know of it, uh, I got from Krishnamurti, an Indian teacher. Uh, and it said, yep, yeah, uh, in answer to a question, it's true, you aren't your body, but it's like being a cavalry officer. If you go into combat, you're not your horse, but you better take very good care of your horse or your life may be at stake. So can we take good care of the body so we have a strong nervous system, reasonably flexible, so that we can not only uh, do our meditation work well, but also just, help, just add more joy to life? Can we do that without becoming so uh, 
infatuated with the body that um, we defeated the whole purpose. Of course, the Buddhists never stop, unrelenting. Impermanence, impermanence, there's only one direction for the body. And that's, it's not pessimistic, it's just true. Uh, it doesn't mean neglect of the body, although I sometimes feel that that has been an outcome. Is that it's a lower order event, and that wisdom is defined as something having mu- not much, if anything, to do with the body, and uh, is a different point of view being shared here. Um, I'm going to leave you with. If I go a few minutes over, not too many. Let's see if I can squeeze it in. Let's go back to the breath. According to the Kalama Sutta, uh, let's say the Buddha suggests this is really a very useful thing to do. Sit down, give exclusive attention to the breathing, and when your mind loses that, just come back again and again. And what's being said is that will help transform your mind, make it over, so it's uh, a different mind. Many benefits come from this simple practice. The mind does become more stable. Uh, There are health benefits that that come from it. Um, There are times in life when so many negative things happen, losses and pain, that it's helpful to have a place to drop into internally. You don't have to get on a plane and go to the Bahamas. You can get to the point where you sit down. Some of the uh, yogis I practice with in Thailand have been practicing for a while. It seemed they could get extraordinarily concentrated. It was like pushing a button of an elevator, you know. All right, 10th floor. And they were just... Uh, and it's a kind of refreshing the mind, rejuvenating it. Even the brain, you can feel it when you come out of even a little bit of silence. Stillness, peace certain kind of peace. And so that's a useful place for us to have to sometimes um, restore ourselves, to give us a freshness and energy to then come back into life again. Okay. Now we can get so good at that that uh, <clears throat> It defeats our purpose as well. It seems like anything can be uh, you become wisdom or ignorance. How do you do that? A tremendous peace comes out of just simply breath awareness, what we're doing, if you do it over time. But it's sometimes called peace with delusion. Because the peace is premised on separating ourselves from the content of our mind Uh, which is intimidating, unwanted, frightening, uh, afflictive, and so forth. It isn't, in other words, it's not self-knowing. It's it's temporarily uh, separating ourselves from our fears, our loneliness, our anguish, our uh, confusion over what to do and what not to do. Temporarily temporarily we drop into a a place of, of great peace. And as I mentioned... It's just words, but it's, I know some of you already know this. Uh, there's tremendous benefit in that. Okay. But the benefit is premised on a holiday from our stuff. 
Okay. Uh, and what can happen is you get so good at it that a, a divorce develops between that ability and then the rest of life. And so we just constantly are preoccupied with not having our peace interfered with. Uh, coming to places like this as much as possible, that would be fine. But then if we use that to set it up against the rest of our life, which I assume for most of us, if not all of us, is most of our life, constantly longing to get back to uh, to sit, uh, being very offended by all kinds of things that are irritating, too loud, too this, too that, um, that becomes another form of suffering. So the peace that comes from that kind of beneficial effect when attached to is very, very limited peace. Precious, invaluable, but easily misused because it's so fulfilling. So we become calm, we become peaceful, but we're still a fool. Just a calm, peaceful fool. And not for very long because all that has to happen is someone turns up who looks at us the wrong way or something had the weather is wrong or we lose our job or you know it's endless what happens uh, and then what is the only place we can be happy on a cushion I gotta scurry back to my cushion uh, so I'm setting the stage for we just began this practice of breath awareness we haven't really gotten to the essence of vipassana yet although how can you not learn and develop insights as you even the simple matter of in and out breathing, uh, you can see where your mind gets lost. For some people, it's uh, lost in the future endlessly. That's what takes you away from the breath. Others constantly uh, drifting into the past or some preoccupation at work again and again and again. Or he said, she said stuff. So, of course, you learn about yourself. But there's another piece, and that, of course, requires that you use the steadiness and the stability that's developed on concentration practice, from concentration practices, that now you don't see that, you don't divorce that from life, but you bring that right into life. And we'll be doing that when we open our sitting up, so there will be no such thing as a distraction, because the practice will be with whatever turns up. And then, of course, by extension, throughout the day here, and even more so probably when we get home, so that we don't have to be afraid of living, so that we can um, not have peace only when we're separated from that which is intimidating or unwelcome or unwanted or terrifying. And that's what liberation is about. Oh, we made it.
May we continue to look into ourselves. May such clear, direct seeing free us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.